This is After School on Core 77. I'm Don Lehman. When I was in high school and just starting to think about college, I knew I wanted to get into design, but wasn't sure what that meant exactly. I liked making things and loved all my art classes, but design wasn't talked about much back then, which made it hard to learn about. And then the iMac came out. In the shadow of the iPod, iPhone, and iPad, it's hard to remember what a big deal the iMac was, but it was a really big deal. Pretty much every computer at that point was a beige box, and then out comes Apple with this translucent, Bondi blue space orb. The aesthetic was head-turning, but it was the design of how people would use it that captured my 16-year-old attention. Plug in the keyboard and mouse, plug into the wall, and start surfing the internet. An all-in-one, fully considered user experience. The iMac saved Apple from bankruptcy and helped put design on the map in the late 90s. Its designers were actually featured in interviews, and those interviews ended up being my first encounter with both the term industrial design and the leader behind the IMAX design, Jonathan Ive. From then on, I knew I was going to be an industrial designer. I think it's safe to say that over the last 15 years, no design team has had more impact than Apple's. Even once you get past the success of their products, they've reshaped not only how the world views design, but how the design industry views itself. For all that notoriety and impact, we actually know very little about Apple's design team. So today, we talk about Johnny Ive and Apple's industrial design group with author Leander Caney. Leander is the editor and publisher of cultofmac.com and has written three books about Apple, Cult of Mac, Cult of iPod, and Inside Steve's Brain. His latest is called Johnny Ive, the genius behind Apple's greatest products. Stay tuned. You've spent a long time covering the tech industry and specifically Apple. Why write a book about Johnny Ive now? Um, because it became clear that he was taking on Steve Jobs' role at Apple, um, that he was becoming the, the creative lead for the company. Um, and, you know, that put him in the, in the catbird seat. Um, and also because, you know, he, not a lot was really known about him. And, um, you know, he it, all, all the products that he'd made... Um, I was really intrigued to find out, you know, what position he actually held in the company and what contribution he made to the company's amazing resurgence. Mm -hmm. What are the challenges of writing a book like this, specifically about someone who works at Apple? <laughs> well, Apple's so secretive, so, oh. um, you know, it's, uh, it's almost impossible to get people to talk. Uh, and, of course, like, you know, Johnny himself declined to be interviewed for the book, even though I'd interviewed him previous, on previous occasions. So, you know, because that's, that's, it's, you know, it's super frustrating. Um, uh, it's, um, it's, uh, you know, it, it, you really want to get inside the mind of the guy and find out what he, you know, what, what, um, what, what drove his choices. Um, and I think it's an important part of history. You know, the, these are, um, such influential products. They've had such a massive impact on, um, our lives and our culture, but you know, it, on the other hand, you know, so little had been written um, and so little was known about him 
that um, it was valuable just to put together, you know, uh, uh, um, as much um, history as you could. And there's a lot of tantalizing clues, you know, in in, um, in some of his uh, interviews and, and the product presentations that he gives. They often, they, they almost seem almost parodic these days. You know, they, they come out um, with this, uh, he, he talks in very abstract terms, and, and he does that because he's not allowed to speak in specific terms uh, about what he's doing, what he's working, you know, what, what, uh, what challenges they face. And, you know, the secrecy is just so frustrating. I mean, it was... Um, uh, you know, everyone is has signed a huge stack of of uh, non-disclosure agreements and secrecy agreements, and people won't even talk. You know, um, thirty years later, uh, and so you know, breaking through that was was really challenging. It was very very difficult to get people to talk about Apple. Yeah, how did you get people to go on record? You know, you talked to um, uh, John Rubenstein, who used to be the head of uh, engineering at Apple, who worked very closely with. I for a long time, um, and you also had Doug uh, Satcher, I think his last name is. Right. Yeah. 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 And he w- and he worked with Johnny for several years. In the he's a designer now as uh, the uh, leads industrial design at Intel. And uh, yeah, how did how did you get these people to to go on? Well, um, Rubenstein, I interviewed um, several times in the past, and uh, he um, agreed to um, you know give me some help. He was. Um, Johnny's boss for, um, I, I guess, you know, I don't know, eight, seven or eight years. Um, and so that was huge. That was a big coup, you know, like I was really pleased with um, with John's input. Um, and Doug um, just, you know, was a huge lucky um, break. Um, we approached him. Um, I had uh, two researchers. And so we approached about um, 200 people, 250 people wow. uh, for interviews, uh, including all of the current design team and all the, you know, um, Previous designers, the the people from the uh, the previous era, the Robert Bruner era, and also um, some people from the Frog design era. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, just 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 by going through that process, you know, Doug was one um, who had left the company. He left the company sort of four years previously, and um, he um, you know was was uh, I think he felt the same way that the, the the story of these products was an important part of industrial history, and um, you know wanted to uh, wanted to you know, go on record and, and tell that story. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, about Johnny. He's, he's got the type of upbringing that I think someone like Malcolm Gladwell would use as an example in one of his books to kind of demonstrate the amount of work it takes to be good at something. And also, <laughs> yeah. you know, so what were his early years like? Well, he grew up um, in a sort of, you know, uh, middle-class um, home in, uh, in England on the outskirts of London. Um, and uh, his father was um, a, a, a designer and a silversmith um, who got into teaching, and so he was a design teacher. And he was such an exceptional teacher that he got plucked out of the uh, the teaching profession by um, the government and was put in charge. Was uh, made what is called a, an inspector, Her Majesty's Inspector of Schools. And these are the people who um, were tried to uh, shape the curriculum. And at the time, Britain was trying to shape a national curriculum so that they standardized teaching across all the schools. So he would take the best practices um, in, uh, in design classes and, and helped um, uh, shape a, a national curriculum that got adopted. And it turned design in the UK from um, this sort of goof-off shop class, you know, where they, different schools could teach whatever they wanted. And some were concentrating on woodwork and others would, were concentrating on, you know, uh, if they had a metal shop. Um, and it was very, um, the curriculum that he created um, 
elevated design into um, you know uh, one of the core subjects on the on the uh, the, the sort of K twelve um, UK curriculum, and it, it's had a huge effect because you know it, Britain has now become a, a, a big design centre and one of you know the exports of the co- it's known for you know music and culture but designers also um, are coming out of the UK um, at a at a great rate. And so he um, nurtured his son's interest in design. It was kind of like the family business. You know, his son was interested in design. And I asked, you know, a few people whether his dad was pushy and whether he sort of, you know, pushed his son into design and, 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 uh, and hothoused him, you know, like sort of Serena and v- Venus Williams. But people said that um, it wasn't. He was just nurturing his son's sort of innate interest in, in design. And so it, it emerged as, you know, Johnny's interest in design and, uh, and creation emerged very early you know he, he used to dismantle things as a kid and wouldn't always put them back together together successfully but he was um, a, a great draftsman at school and um his uh, his artistic abilities were, were noticed immediately by his teachers mm-hmm. and he, he he created things you know he, he created a clock that was um made out of wood but it was so beautifully made that you couldn't tell what material it was made out of and uh, he was winning um, prizes even as a teenager uh, in fact, he missed his first day at um, at college because he was picking up a design, uh, a prize that he won when he was uh, when he was at school. <laughs> yeah, so you know he goes to design school, and it, you know it sounds like he's got a fairly, you know, kind of Bauhaus based design education where they're you know really kind of, um, you know, just kind of get throw people into it, and they're really kind of forced to make stuff and draw and kind of the standard kind of design education. Uh, that a lot of industrial designers go through, um, but obviously he was the, the the cream of the crop in his class. Uh, after graduating, he he moves to London and eventually uh, joins a startup firm called Tangerine as a partner. Uh, what was that experience like for him? <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, um, Tangerine, yeah, was um, in an interesting time. Britain was in a uh, going through a recession and. Um, Design um, wasn't really done by companies. It was sort of run by, if you hired a designer, he was probably a freelancer, you know, an individual. It was um, mm-hmm. an army of one. And so there weren't that many design firms. I think Seymour Powell and uh, Roberts Weaver Group, which is the company that he worked for briefly before he joined the Tangerine Partnership. Um, so they were, um, but at the same time, you know, design in the 80s was, um, was starting to take off. I think a lot of companies... Um, realized that design was something that they needed to get into, and so um, uh, you know these 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 startup companies um, found a lot of work very quickly, and so they grew like crazy. I mean, they um, were originally in this sort of front bedroom with a, a shared com- one computer between um, uh, three of them, and uh, they um, you know they they picked up work pretty quickly and moved to um, this area of North London that's now really trendy. And very fashionable, but then was kind of sleazy and a bit a bit seedy. So they they worked for a lot of clients. I mean, they they picked up a lot of work uh, and a lot of varied um, uh, uh, you know jobs. And they were doing um, power tools for one company, and they did some lawnmowers for another. Um, and uh, one of their big clients was um, Ideal Standard, which is a um, British bathroom um, company that makes. And so Johnny and his partners designed uh, sinks and bathrooms and bidets. Um, for them, um, but they were also doing. You know, he did a barber's comb. It was kind of all over the place. I mean, some jobs were big and some jobs were small. Um, it uh, it was kind of difficult on Johnny because he liked to do the pure design, uh, 
he was really interested in in just sort of you know solving problems um, and and the selling of the company the, the constantly having to sell you know the company to the clients he found kind of uh, difficult and frustrating it didn't suit his his talents at all and of course um, he also got frustrated as well with um, seeing his designs diluted or changed by the client you know he didn't have the power to see them all the way through to finished products he would just turn over you know the brief uh, the recommendations the design and in uh, a lot of occasions, I think that those designs became um, changed, you know, um, by, by the uh, by the by the client. Yeah, very classic. Uh, you know what <laughs> happens to to many right. designers working in a in a design studio. So, what eventually lures him from London to California? Well, he'd been um, after uh, graduating from college. He um, he actually he actually wanted another design prize, a, a travel prize. Um, that sent him to the East Coast, and as soon as that was over, he spent eight weeks at Pitney Bowes up in uh, in New York. As soon as that was over, he uh, hopped on a plane to um, California and did a tour of the the design studios in in Silicon Valley. And this is in um, the late eighties, eighty nine. And one of the places he visited was was Luna Design, which was run by Robert Bruner in San Jose. And this was another um, startup design studio. And he was picking up a lot of work in 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 uh, Silicon Valley, and uh, was doing some contract work for Apple. Um, but Robert Bruner wanted to hire Johnny straight away. Johnny took this college um, project that he'd made, uh, this futuristic, strange-looking telephone, a landline telephone, made out of um, tubes of plastic, white plastic. And uh, <clears throat> what impressed Bruner was that um, Ive had not figured out not just you know the outside. Um, appearance of the phone, but also how it would be made. And he said that you never saw that in students. You know, the students never really thought about the manufacturing part. Of course, you know, it's a hugely important thing, but it was so, he was so far ahead of his time, he was mightily impressed. So he offered a, a job to Johnny then, but Johnny had already promised to work for another company, Robert Weaver's Group in London. So he fulfilled his promises and went back, and then he got picked, he was working with his partners in Tangerine. And the you know the three four five years he was working at Tangerine, he became frustrated by the realities of working for um, a design agency. And so Bruner came back to him. By this time, Bruner was in Apple, and had set up the first industrial design studio within Apple, the first internal one. Before this, Apple had outsourced design. Um, and um, Bruner was fond of giving working with outside agencies. I mean, he came from an outside design agency, and he liked the way they worked, and and would like to. He wanted to see some original thinking, so he offered. He did this fairly frequently. He would go to outside design agencies and, and offer them work, contract work, um, on sort of these forward-looking, futuristic, you know, what might be blue sky projects. And at the time he went to um, uh, Tangerine, um, he had a brief to create a range of mobile products. They were just developing the Newton inside Apple. It hadn't come out yet, but the, they were very excited about the Newton. And they were starting to imagine, you know, what could could we do, you know, different tablets, different sizes of tablets, and um, other uh, mobile products that would, you know, some would run the the the, the Newton operating system, some would run um, the Mac operating system, but portability and mobile products, laptops, um, were very important. Uh, they thought they were going to be very important. Um, so they they took um, this project called Juggernaut to Tangerine, and the brief was to design. Um, three or four different mobile um, uh, tablet-cum laptops. And 
uh, funny enough, and you know, this is sort of in in uh, the early nineties, and they were already sort of thinking ahead to the kind of products we see now, these sort of hybrid laptop tablets. And so he had Johnny and uh, uh, his partners at Tangerine um, create some of these sort of forward-looking blue sky tablets and and uh, hybrid uh, tablet laptops. So at some point, Brunner convinces Ive to join him at Apple. What's Apple like at that time? Um, it was... Um... It, uh, it was very engineering driven. Um, it's uh, the designers, um, they, even though they, you know, they recruited Bruner to be the, the in-house design. They were so impressed with this work. They recruited him to bring design in-house. And Bruner um, uh, just found it frustrating to work with the engineers because so often, more often than not, they would, um, the engineers would, 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 you know, give them a box of parts and say, here, you know, stick a nice, make it look good, stick a nice skin on it. Um, and he tried to battle that culture. So he would try to inject himself, you know, much earlier in the process and say, you know, what exactly is this machine going to do? And, you know, what, what, what kind of components is it going to have? And, if, uh, and he tried to start to bring, you know, design from the outside in. But also look at the functionality, you know, like how the things were going to work. So he was trying to inj inject his design department much earlier into the stage, um, uh, uh, it, much earlier into the process. You know, the engineers were just used to bringing design at the very end to make things look good. Um, so it it was um it was a difficult uh, it was a difficult environment to work in for the you know to try to change the culture internally and also Apple was like the sort of the strange experiment in extreme democracy. Um, Steve Jobs had been gone from the company now for like uh, seven or eight years, and Jobs you know had such a tyrannical um, management style, uh, and then his um, successors, uh, especially Jean Louis Gasset, he was another. Um, you know, uh, demanding leader, that the company um, culture had rebelled away from this, um, you know, uh, very strong leadership. And and so there was this consensus con culture where everything had to be agreed on. And it was very bureaucratic. They had all documents and briefs, you know, every time something was dreamt up, the marketing department had to have a marketing brief and the engineering department had an engineering spec and um, they would have these meetings where they would go over these and, and you would get your classic feature creep. Everyone wanted to add a new feature. Marketing wanted this and they said, you know, you couldn't sell a computer without that. So, um, you know, it was, um, it was sort of slow moving and um, not very imaginative. No one really had much control. Um, it's, uh, and, and you can see what happened. You know, the product, um, the product's, uh, they had, you know, the 40 different machines, I think, and they were selling printers and monitors and there was the Newton and there was PowerBooks and there was all kinds of desktops. Um, sometimes it's very difficult to tell. Some some of the desktops were almost exactly the same, but they would have different names, you know, if they were going to go into different channels. Right. So so it was really, really confusing. But, you know, the, the computer industry was growing so fast and so big that they were able to ride this wave, even though the company was, you know, basically dysfunctional. Um, yeah, so it uh, it was a challenging time for the for them, but they they would they had some successes. You know, Bruner um, started to thanks to these sort of blue sky projects, he started bringing projects to the engineers, and um, you know one of them was the twentieth anniversary Mac, which was the one of the first big projects that Johnny worked on when he was when he joined the design team, uh, and that was originally conceived as you know the first f uh, flat panel computer for the home. And it was designed, and it was actually the first computer designed specifically for the home. 
before that, all the computers were designed for offices. Right. You know, because that's where, where the, um, the the customers uh, the customers were basically businesses. So um, they wanted um, to design a, a computer for the for the living room for the home that had um, a lot of multimedia capabilities. CD-ROMs were just taken off, and they thought, you know, you can put a lot of video and music on a CD-ROM. So Bruno wanted to blend the stereo, the home stereo, with a computer. And it's kind of a radical idea, you know, and you know, back in that time, uh, nobody was thinking like this. And uh, they also wanted to um, use uh, um, a flat screen because they were just starting to take off in laptops. So it was originally conceived, you know, very much like the iMac um, turned out these days. But it was a hell of a project, and it took them, um, you know, four years uh, internally to develop it. And there were a lot of setbacks. A lot of them were sort of engineering setbacks. One of the big problems was they were trying to get a desktop computer out of laptop parts, and laptop parts were at least a generation behind, so they couldn't get the performance out of it. It was terrible. It was just, it was really slow. Uh, and the video was 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 slow and uh, and not very not very impressive. Um, so um, you know, but the, the the forward thinking of that uh, was kind of remarkable, and and then it got ruined, you know, by all the, the marketing department. In the end, by the time it was ready for the market, they decided to make it a limited run, um, price it at I think nine thousand um, dollars, and uh, you know, so you had this hugely expensive computer that was kind of underpowered. Um, and um, it was a sort of triumph, you know, really of, of form over function. It, it just, you know, it wasn't, they weren't thinking about the, the target market at all. Yeah. And home users, you know, didn't want to spend that kind of money for a machine for the home. Yeah. So uh, around that time, I think it was uh, 95, you know, Brunner just kind of hits his wits end with dealing with the sort of uh, engineering first, you know, marketing first culture. Uh, and decides to leave Apple, uh, recommending Johnny to become head of the ID group. Uh, That's right. And Johnny, I think he's, is he 29 at that point? Or he's he's in his very late 20s or early 30s. He's kind of pretty young to be running a, a, a group of that size. Right, yeah. And so how does he adapt to that new role? Well, not very well, actually. Um, uh it's um you know he he I, I think he adopted a lot of sort of Bruner's worst habits um or I mean that's not fair to say it, it, uh, Bruner liked to you know Bruner was using a lot of um he would set up these kind of competitions Bruner's way of working was like he'd like to see you know a thousand flowers bloom and then he would choose the best ideas and I think this is pretty typical um with the design team you know that you would you'd let well Bruner would set up the designers against each other and, and he'd set three or four designers onto a project and each one would come up with a different design and then he would try to blend them together, take the best ideas and then um or or just choose the best design. Um so Johnny was doing the same thing. He was letting all the designers design all these different crazy designs, but then I don't think he was doing a very good job of choosing mm. or taking the best ideas from each and, you know, uh, melding them together. So, you know, Satsuki was saying that he joined the design team around this time in, in 96 after Johnny had been ch in charge for a couple of years. And they had, you know, there was three or four different designs for a new desktop and there were three or four different designs for a new laptop. And each of them was completely different. They looked like they came from completely different companies. And they weren't going to release, you know, just one of them. They were going to release all four of them. And he found this, you know, he was kind of flabbergasted by this. There was no leadership. There was no editing. 
Um, and, you know, I think this is where Johnny's age and inexperience came in. He was he didn't have that, you know, experience enough to be able to take control of the design team and and provide it direction. And of course, he got that when Steve Jobs returned. Sure. Yeah. So that's that's a, a good kind of breaking point there. So after a couple of years, you know, Johnny's kind of reached a similar point of frustration that um, Robert Brunner has. And he's contemplating leaving Apple. Uh, but then in mid-97, I think, um, the board fires uh, the current CEO, which, who is uh, Gil Emilio, and uh, inserts Steve Jobs to lead Apple as an interim CDO uh, while, nice. while they're kind of searching for a more permanent replacement. Could you, could you talk a little bit about the meeting where this is announced? Because it's fairly dramatic and, and hilarious. <laughs> yeah, Um uh, jobs have been brought back in. They bought um, Jobs' company next software for the um, operating system, and sure. um, which, which became be... uh, OS 10 and iOS. OS... Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Jobs was supposed to be just a, an advisor to the CEO, but um, he soon engineered it that uh, Emilio um, got fired by the board. And they'd had this meeting at um, Apple's town hall, where they called in um, some of the top uh, managers and and um, the top people at the company. Uh, and Emilio came out and said, "Just you know, it, it's you know, I'm I'm sorry, it's it's time for me to go," and and sort of shuffled off the stage. And uh, Jobs comes in and and starts you know berating everybody, and he says, um, "You know, what's wrong with this place?" Um, and before anyone can answer, he says, "The products, it's the products. The products suck. <laughs> um, they've got no sex in them anymore." Yeah. And it's, you know, it's brutal, but it's so totally true. He's absolutely right. He can he put his finger on it. Um, and where's uh, Johnny during all of this? Well, he's sitting in the back, and he wants to go back to London. He wants to quit and go back and, uh, you know, go back to uh, to the UK. But um, Job starts talking about how, um, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, the products, the products that they're going to reform, you know, the company by focusing on products. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what they're going to concentrate on. Yeah, that's going to be their primary focus. And and it spoke to something in Johnny. You know, like it, that that was his philosophy too. Um, make good products, and they will sell if you make good products. And uh, um, that sort of convinced him to stick around for a bit. Um, and Rubenstein had a hand in that too. You know, like he was trying. To, he tried to quit with Rubenstein. And Rubenstein wouldn't let him quit. <laughs> oh <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and persuaded him to stay. Um, uh, you know, to, to sort of see it through, and they um, persuaded him that design, industrial design, was going to be a big part of Apple's resurgence. So they were going to concentrate on the products. They were going to design them really well, and that design would be, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, such an important part of the comeback that he would be. They would make history. They were so convinced, Rubenstein and Jobs, that they could that they were going to save Apple. That um, they were able to bring, you know, people like Johnny along with them. Yeah, well, you know, that's kind of interesting because you know now industrial design becomes more of a prominent role. It's kind of the centerpiece of Jobs' strategy. Uh, but at one point, Jobs actually contemplates bringing in uh, a fairly famous industrial designer, Richard Sapper, to lead the group. But eventually, he decides to stick with Johnny. Uh, why do you think he chose to keep keep Johnny in place? Well, he he didn't really know what he had. You know, Jobs when when he came back to Apple was Apple was huge and sprawling, and it had buildings all over the all over Cupertino. And um, Jobs did a, a a really thorough review of the company, what it was up to, and he had every product team come into a conference room and to present 
what they were working on, what they're going to be working on, and, and why they should keep working on what they were doing. Um, and the design studio was actually off-site. It was across um, uh, De Anza Boulevard. So it's a, he didn't get a chance to get over there and see it. And Johnny's team produced a brochure um, with pictures of all the stuff they'd been working on and all the stuff they'd done. And it was full of all these kind of crazy, swoopy, colorful plastic computers, you know, the kind of stuff that the previous management had been too timid to release. Right. Um, and so Jobs, yeah, wanted you know he wanted a world class designer, and he thought about bringing back um, Esslinger from from Frog Design, who mm-hmm. he'd worked uh, previously, and also at Next, and and like you said, Richard Sapper, and and a couple of other you know world class designers. That was his first thought, but then um, he got a tour. He was taken on a tour of the studio, and uh, after seeing this brochure, and he saw these crazy prototypes, and realized that he had what he was looking for, which was a world class design team right under his nose. And of course, he and Johnny bonded as well. You know, they're they're two peas in the pod. And I think Jobs is very much like Johnny's dad. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, you had this this. Um, well, this is and, what eventually. Yeah, in, in what sense do you say that? Well, you know, the, uh, this is the relationship that developed. I mean, at first, you know, Jobs was so busy trying to save the company that he didn't spend that much time with Johnny. Um, and of course, you know that uh, they were doing the iMac, um, and the iMac was interesting because. Um, you know, Job said that um, his daughter was going to college and he'd looked for a computer for her and they were all horrible. They were terrible. You know, he was trying to buy her a Dell mm. uh, or some or an HP machine and, and he didn't like the Apple ones either. And he said, what I want is a really easy machine. You could just take it out of the box and plug it in and plug it right into the internet and you're ready to go. And this, of course, is a time when, you know, when, when no computer could do that. You had to go out and buy a modem, and then you had to go find the modem software, and, you know, it was a hairy headache. So that was the brief, and he was going to bet the entire company on that. He cut, it, he cut the company all the way back to just four machines, um, uh, two desktops, one for professionals, one for consumers, and two um, laptops, one for professionals and one for consumers. And the first machine they put out actually was the – um, Power Mac G3, I think. Right, right, right. The blue and white one. No, it was actually uh, it was a beige box, and it, it oh, very much. Oh, right. Like yes. What they were putting out. Yeah. And that was, um, you know, that was kind of a stopgap. It was the Pro Desktop, and they took the guts from. Um, actually, I say it, it was actually quite powerful. It's actually quite a good machine. It actually sold a lot of. It sold a lot of units. It sold about a million units. It was actually pretty fast. For its time, I think, and um, but it didn't have any indu- you know cool industrial design. It used right. that sort of previous beige box yeah. you know design. If I remember correctly, that was the one that you there. It did kind of open up from the side though, like the uh, the blue and white ones eventually did. I think there was a button. There was like a little yeah. s- side thing there, and it opened up. And I think that was something Johnny had really pushed for. Yeah, the top flipped up. There were two buttons on the front, and you flip the top up, so yeah. it's pretty easy in there and you could put you know ram in yeah exactly that was an idea that uh, that i you know that was one of the things that i described in the book uh, one of the battles that he had you know that, that to make it easy to for prof- yeah, in, on pro machines to get into the internals yeah that he had to fight really hard to get um, accepted by the engineers and by the management there but um the you know the imac um uh, you know jobs gave them this brief and he said you know we're gonna this is what we're gonna bet the company on this is gonna be the make or break product and um johnny's team um came up with the egg shape. They wanted to do it in translucent. Well, they came up with this egg shape first. And um, at first, Jobs rejected it. He didn't like it. He thought it looked goofy. Uh, but Jobs, uh, Johnny slowly, uh, on a second meeting, 
um, persuaded him that um, it had potential. And on the second meeting, Jobs this time loved it. Um, and um, they showed him three models in plastic. One was purple, one was orange, uh, and one was sort of greenish. But the solid plastic made it look cheap. It wasn't very attractive. So they started making it in translucent plastic, which gave it a much classier appearance. Um, and, um, you know, the funny thing is that Jobs wasn't that involved in these design decisions at that time because he was so busy trying to save the rest of the company. Um, you know, he wasn't able to get really intimately involved in the, in the design of the product. But as it went on, you know, he and Johnny formed a, a much stronger and closer relationship and Jobs started to become, you know, a really frequent visitor of the design studio. And he would go over there and spend uh, most afternoons over there tinkering around and playing around with the, uh, with the iMac and the other machines they were developing. Yeah. Um, you know, what do you think ultimately made their partnership work? Because it becomes the, the engine of, you know, everything that they kind of produce from that point on. What was it about them that they could work together? Yeah, because they're very different. Um, you know, Jobs is very um, mercurial and, uh, and, and um, screams and shouts a lot. And John is the exact opposite, you know, very shy and retiring and, and, and never raises his voice. Um, they, I think, you know, it was like a, the relationship with his dad. I think it was very much... Um, Johnny had been frustrated at the company and, and couldn't get his um, designs implemented by the engineers. And he was frustrated, you know, they were, he was getting blocked all the time. And Jobs totally cleared that away. I mean, he was like the, his enforcer, his muscle in the company. It was like, you know, he sided with Johnny. Johnny said they want to do this, and Jobs would tell the engineers that they're going to do it this way, his way, you know, uh, or Jobs' way, because, you know, Jobs is the CEO. So he was able to, um, you know, get uh, uh, Johnny's designs implemented by this sort of incalcitrant uh, engineering culture. And that obviously, you know, formed a, formed a strong bond. And I think their love of design, their love of products, their love of solving problems there, both had this crazy attention to every single detail. You know, John's education was very hands-on at Newcastle. He, he knew how to make things. And so, you know, making them in the factories is really where they put all their work in figuring out how to make these things in their millions. Um, and the manufacturing process drives a lot of the design decisions. So it's not just a question of making it, you know, the appearance of the thing, it's how you're going to make it. And Jobs loved that stuff too. I mean, Jobs was always obsessed with factories. Um, had tried to set up um, a huge factory for the Mac, the, the, the original Macintosh uh, in, uh, in the 80s in, uh, in Fremont. So Jobs loved all this kind of stuff too. Um, you know, the design of the packaging and, you know, the, the unboxing routine and so they were geeking out. They both geeked out, uh, you know, about making these great products, and they were having a few. I mean, look what they produced. They were having super fun. Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite parts of the book is kind of learning about um, the ways Johnny and his team would manage Steve Jobs, and you know, this is something that a lot of designers have to do. It's kind of carefully figuring out the right way to bring an idea in front of someone who's going to give it their blessing to, you know, to get it the go ahead. Uh, and for some reason, you know, I just never really thought you would have to do that with Steve Jobs. You know, he always gets this kind of reputation as a being very, um, you know, design focused. And he kind of he understands it in a way that most sort of CEOs don't. Uh, so wh what are some of the tactics they use to get him to go along with their design work? 
Yeah, well, they, you know, they did they did so much work um, for the presentations, you know. So they would only show him stuff that they already wanted him to approve. Um, but Jobs, you know, if you showed him one thing, he would reject it <laughs> out of hand. And I think this is like, you know, a conscious decision on Jobs' part to try to push people to do, you know, better work. Um, and so they would... Um, uh, they'd make they'd make three things. They 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 sometimes it was you know sometimes it was three good things, and they really didn't want to make a choice between three you know between these different uh, alternatives. But often they would they would make a couple of things that were just ringers. You know they were there to be sacrificed, sacrificial lambs, mm. and they would show those twice. I'm sorry, show those 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 first two things first, and Jobs would reject both of them. And then they would say, ah, but then, look, there's this. And they would show him what they really wanted him to choose. And, and because he'd already rejected a couple of things, he would rave about the third choice. And I heard this story over and over by you know, all, sorts, all sorts of people, uh, uh, you know, some of the software engineers and some of the hardware designers. And Tony Fidel did this too when he first pitched the first iPod. So this, this came up a lot. This, you know, they, they, all the veterans at Apple knew this is exactly how to present to Steve Jobs, to get him to choose what you wanted him to choose. Yeah. Do you think he knew he was being managed in this sort of way? Um, you know, I can't imagine that he didn't. Um, but, you know, this is what he wanted. He wanted to have choices and alternatives. He liked to, you know, he he um, he wanted to see, he wanted to make sure that his team were looking at all these different ideas. So I'm not sure that it really mattered that much because he was getting what he wanted out of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, tell me a he little... Was... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, so the other thing really, though, is, I mean... Especially, you know, further down the road, um, when Apple had stabilized. I mean, maybe we can talk about this later. But um, uh, he became, you know, he he wasn't your typical CEO. Where at first he was, you know, he was so busy trying to save Apple that they did these presentations. He would say, "Okay, here's your brief," and then they would come back a couple of weeks later with some models, and you know, that would be he would just you know make a quick choice and then he'd go back, you know, to to the uh, to his executive suite and and start fixing other problems. Um, so he was getting you know design briefs, but Towards, you know, within a few years, he was spending almost all of his time in the design studio, and he became a member of the design team. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, these these he was making choices, you know, much more hands on at, at a later stage. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about uh, Ive's design team. Yeah. So when Ive joined, um, a lot uh, Bruner had recruited. Um, I think about about a dozen designers, and and they came in a couple of ways. And Johnny was in sort of the second wave, uh, and they're they're a very international team. But uh, you know, a lot of uh, there's an Italian and and uh, a couple of people from New Zealand, a, a ton of Brits. They they actually kind of do dominated by people from the UK, um, and it grew to about um, sixteen, and it's remained very stable. They're all um, sort of young. Well, you know, I hate to say it, but they're all sort of young white men. There was only a couple of women on the team. Uh, I think three uh, at the most, and um, a lot of them have been recruited by Bruner and then by Johnny himself. Johnny was, you know, he came Bruner's sort of second in command. So Johnny recruited a lot of these designers, um, and uh, they all work um, together in this in the industrial design studio in uh, in Apple's um, HQ. It's super secretive, you know. No one's allowed to go in there. Even some of Apple's own executives. Yeah, uh, and and they have a you know they 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 work very collaboratively. So they everything they do is um, sort of based on these these biweekly brainstorms, which last about three hours, and they conduct them in the in this and there's a big stu uh, kitchen in the studio with a big kitchen t wooden table, and so twice a week they gather around this um, table to hash over whatever they're working on, um, and they you know John is involved in this too, and 
And it's, uh, David Kerr has written about brainstorms and brainstorming techniques and how, how they should be conducted. They're very sort of free-flowing um, uh, meetings and, uh, you know, you want to get um, all, you know, there's no such thing as a bad idea. Right. Um, any crazy idea is, is uh, you know, can be, should be thrown out. And they've been doing this for years now, and they've been working for about 20 years together. So they're very comfortable with each other, and they're very comfortable with, with, with chucking out ideas and, and giving each other sort of, you know, sometimes fairly brutal feedback on, on, on this stuff. Um, and sketching is a huge part of what they do, so they all use these, um, these um, bound sketchbooks. And at the end of the meeting, you know, Johnny and whoever the lead designer is will, will gather the sketchbooks up and copy the best ideas and put them into a file. Um, and they keep very, very careful records of what they do. All the brainstorming means, all the you know, all the stuff they're working on is very, very carefully documented. Yeah. Uh, what's their studio space like? It's um, it's on the ground floor of um, Infinite Loop Two, which is one of the six buildings in Apple's um, uh, sort of oval-shaped campus. So it takes up the entire ground floor. It's about fifteen thousand square feet, um, and um, it's a pretty big industrial you know classic industrial space it's got con polished concrete floors and um there are glass partitions everywhere with steel fittings so it kind of looks like you know their um apple's uh retail stores especially you know the one in manhattan sure and it's sort of divided into two spaces when you first go in through the front door there is um, a big presentation space and this has four large wooden tables that are exactly like the ones in Apple stores. And in fact, that's where Jobs and the store designers got the idea. And this is where they put all the prototypes of the products they're working on. So there's one table for the iPod and one for the iPad and one for the iPhone. Uh, and the prototypes and the models are covered in black cloth at all times. But when they want to show something to Jobs or the other executives, you know, they'll take them over to the table and remove the black cloth and discuss you know, whatever, whatever, all, the, all the models of the prototypes that are there. And then um, to the left of that, at the end of that space is a machine shop where there are um, some CNC milling machines, three CNC milling machines, and also a finishing booth where there are some sanding machines and a, and a paint, um, paint, paint spraying booth to making foam models and, and, and spraying them so they look fairly realistic. And to the left, there's a, a CAD studio where about 15 CAD designers sit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this also is funded by glass, but these guys sit sort of more, the lights get very low, so they literally sit in the dark. And this is where they, they make all of the 3D um, software models in, uh, in 3D software of, of whatever the you know, uh, sketches the designers come, come up with. And at the front of this space is, is the only private office in the studio, which is where uh, Johnny's office, and this is uh, a, a glass cube, so it's, it's, it's uh, basically you know, uh, a 12 by 12 square with with three glass walls and there's almost nothing in there just a desk that was designed by his friend mark newson and a chair and a lamp and a, and a couple of small shelves and then to the left is where the designers work there's another big open space and there are five tables there that are that are all um divided with these low partitions and the 15, 16 17 designers work um you know they have their computers and their their personal, their private spaces at, you know, at these big shared desks, and then there's a kitchen in front of that with a big wooden table. Yeah. Um, you know what's interesting is many of their designers have been there since before Jobs came back, uh, and they just tend to have a long kind of period of of stay there. There's not much turnover, uh, you know, and all of them could probably leave and run their own studios. And and Johnny gets offers all the time to 
you know, go run another company. But, you know, I wonder, why do you think that they stay? <laughs> I think um, it's a great job. You know, they have um, amazing um, freedom and amazing resources. And, you know, it's Jobs and Johnny uh, over the years have managed to make Apple a, you know, a very design-driven company. And so these are the people that are driving the company. The whole company is in, you know, um, thrall to the products that they create. Um, so they have, you know, unprecedented um, power and resources. I mean, it's one of the world's biggest companies. And Apple is spending incredible sums of money to equip factories to make these products. Um, and it's a nice working environment. You know, Doug Satsuka told me that um, he works, uh, you know, sort of nine. 30 to 5.30 and when they do the brainstorming meetings they have a nice fancy espresso machine and, and so a couple of the designers make espresso coffees for everybody and it's you know it's energetic and it's charged up and they're changing the world um, you know they can see the, the impact of their products they get on an airplane and, and everyone's got white earbuds and, and iPads and iPhones so you know they're having a huge a huge huge effect and I don't think if you left for another company I mean there aren't many companies that you can have that freedom and those resources and that impact. Yeah. I mean, everything else is going to be a letdown. You know, these are the rock stars of the design world. And uh, anywhere else they go is just going to be, you know, pale in comparison. Yeah. Plus, they would have to set up that kind of environment. Like Johnny himself has said that you couldn't take him and his team and put it into another company and they wouldn't be as effective because, the, you know, only Apple. Apple is one of the few companies in the world that, that is design driven in this way. Yeah. And and truly design driven. There's a lot of companies that will say that they think that they are design driven or that they will you know, that we have designers on staff, so clearly we think about design. But I mean it is a marked difference how Apple does it and that essentially the the ID group is, you know, responsible for a lot of the strategy of the company. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Apple's Apple's Apple, the company, is just like Apple's products. They're very um, deeply, vertically integrated. You know, so whereas where an Apple, you know, the iPhone, Apple takes care of the hardware and the software and the online services that it connects to. You know, the, the company is very, very similar too. You know, they take care. Uh, the, the 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 software department is tightly integrated with the marketing department and with the legal and with the support, and they have this concurrent design process where they take into account. Um, everything, every when they decide to do a product, you know, every every part of that product and and its life is taken into account from the very beginning when they're designing it. So, in other words, you know, the, the, people complain about the iPhone and say that it's difficult to repair, and they get a lot of flack from people like iFixit because it's difficult to take to pieces and for a consumer to swap out the battery. But the phone's very carefully designed to be repaired in Apple stores. Right. Uh, by Apple's technicians, and you know, so it's that kind of like that that sort of thinking of, um, you know, from uh, uh, what's what, there's actually a term for it, but I've forgotten it now. But um, you know, the, from the the product from its conception all the way to the end of its life, it, you know, they're, they're taking into account all of those cradle, different cradle to cradle, cradle to cradle. Yeah, yeah. I think actually that's actually a quite specific definition though, right? Which has. Um, uh, yeah. Ramifications for um, yeah, there's more sustainable yeah. yeah yeah and 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 I don't think Apple hasn't actually joined that um, 
uh, that group, right? So I don't think its products are, um, you know, classic cradle-to-cradle sure. products because they can't be recycled. But uh, Right. How does, uh, how does his team work with the rest of the teams at Apple? What kind of power do they have when they kind of go into a meeting? Um, they have, you know, uh, the, all the power. Everyone looks up to the ID group. None of the other groups can say no. Um, and if they do, then they get, <laughs> they get fired. <laughs> so there was quite a, this, you know, they, that, that, um, they, when they were doing the iMac, um, the engineers would say no. And, uh, and they, they got rid of all the engineers that, all the old guard that wouldn't, um, acquiesce to the sort of the new regime and so now you know they the engineers are basically working for the industrial designers and if the industrial designers want something the engineers have to figure out how to make it happen yeah uh during this time you know i I wonder how uh how you learned about how uh ive's leadership abilities have evolved and how his role has evolved during this this time when you know they're coming out with iMacs and iBooks and iPods and iPhones. Yeah, he's um, you know, he doesn't stand on chairs and he doesn't scream and shout. He's a he, his team respect him really deeply. He's a really really good designer, and he empowers the team. So he'll create a lead designer on whatever project you know they're working on, and that that designer will have to, you know, will be responsible for seeing it through. But he adjudicates all the design decisions. So, you know, they bring him um, suggestions for colors or textures or finishes and whatever it is, you know. So he, he, he's the one who makes those decisions, often in conjunction with, with Jobs, mm-hmm. or it was before Jobs died. And, um, uh, but he's also, you know, very hands-on. He's involved in all of the brainstorming meetings, and he's also, you know, very deeply involved in um, the, the decisions about the manufacturing and, you know, the, the materials they're using He's he's deeply respected by his team, so um, you know they, there's no need really for him to um, you know to, he didn't have to battle like Jobs did. Jobs was battling sort of an entrenched culture um, and trying to change things, um, and jo- and Johnny has a very very you know uh, collegial relationship with all the designers. Like you said, they they've all been there for years. They were all there before Jobs uh, returned to the company, and 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 most of them are still there now. So um, you know he doesn't. Uh, it's it's a it's a work environment that's very collaborative, very harmonious, um, and and very productive. Yeah, you know, uh, during their time together, you know, Johnny and Steve developed a pretty close relationship. Jobs calls Johnny his uh, chief collabor- uh, chief collaborator. Uh, when when Jobs stepped down and ultimately passed away. Why did the CEO role go to uh, Tim Cook and not to Johnny? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I think you know one of the, 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 the that's why people ask me why did I write a, a book about Johnny Ive? You know, because if he's not CEO, um, he's probably not the most important per- person at the company. But I, you know, I think what happened um, in the last few years of, of Jobs's life is that you know Tim Cook had been elevated up to being the de facto CEO, and Cook ran Apple day to day while freeing up um, Steve Jobs to, to do what he liked to do, which is develop new products. And so um, towards the end, um, Johnny would spend most of his mornings in Steve Jobs' meetings, 
helping jobs make sort of strategic decisions and, and decisions about marketing and legal and whatever else they were looking at. And then they would have lunch together. And then they would spend all afternoon in the design studio talking about new products. And I think, um, you know, John is in almost the same position now. Um, Tim Cook runs the company day to day, which frees up Johnny to do what Steve Jobs did, which is spend most of his time developing new products. And, you know, Johnny has said that he, that he, he's, you know, he's doing what he loves to do. He loves to design. He didn't like running a company when he was at Tangerine. Right. And it was a small, you know, startup design agency. He didn't like all the things you have to do to run a company. Um, all the personnel decisions, all the, you know, stuff about marketing and salesmanship. And he just wants to design. And so he is in that position now. You know, he has been freed up to concentrate on design um, in this company that has these, you know, I think probably the possibly the biggest resources in the history of industry um, at his disposal. So, you know, I don't think he would want to be the CEO. It could be the worst possible job for him. Right. Right. Yeah. And that that's part of the reason why I just don't see him ever wanting or needing to leave because it's just set up so ideally for him to do exactly the part that he's great at. Indeed. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Uh, it's kind of, um, it's, you know, he's been very, well, lucky you want to, you want to say lucky because he's, he's engineered so much of it himself. But sure. yeah, it's, it's absolutely perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's an amazing position. What's his relationship like with Tim Cook? I think it's very collegial. It's, you know, it, um, Cook is much more of a consensus player than Jobs was. Sure. Jobs used to love a good fight, a good argument. He would often play devil's advocate just to get an argument going. And that's because Jobs felt, I think, that if people defended their position, they believed strongly in it. And then you could trust that they, you know, they, that their instincts were, were right. Um, and he would, you know, really test and push people. Um, but I think Cook is much more harmonious. He's, you know, I, he doesn't want to have um, fights like and, and pit people against each other like Jobs did. Jobs would like play the executives off each other, and there were some stories about, um, you know, Fidel fighting with um, Scott Forstall, um, who was the head of software, and Fidel was, you know, head of the iPod division, and and Jobs, you know, sort of thrived off of that kind of Machiavellian fighting amongst his uh, his uh, you know his executives, and Cook is much more, you know calm and considered um but he's also a steely character i mean um they're all tough and so is johnny ive too i mean he comes across as a very polite englishman but he's had his fights and has had some of his enemies well not enemies or his um the people that he fought with including his old boss john rubenstein um you know fired from the well gotten rid of from the company rubenstein stepped down mm -hmm. but um, the story in um, Isaacson's book is that Johnny went to Jobs and said, it's him or me. And so Rubenstein was asked to step down. And his leaving was, you know, positioned as a retirement. Um, but, um, you know, Johnny became senior vice president of industrial design, reporting, um, you know, directly to um, the CEO. Uh, and, you know, so they got rid of his former you know he got they got rid of his boss and 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 you know elevated his position so he's no pussycat you know you can see that he knows how to operate in a corporate environment yeah with you know fairly headstrong and tough uh people right right it seems like that that there that 
Cook and I have in some way are, are pretty ideally matched to each what each other kind of appreciates about each other's role. You know, because I have this very, you know, a lot of the work that comes out of Apple is this very, you know, how can we make this simpler and better? And, you know, the whole unibody kind of design language kind of evolved from that and kind of, you know, finding these efficiencies in manufacturing. And that's just got to line up so well with what someone like Tim Cook is great at. Well, yeah, Cook has a design background, too. He he studied design um, as 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 an undergraduate, I think. And um, Cook comes from the operations division, right? Uh, and uh, you know, was was sort of the the, the genius that built Apple's amazing um, supply chain. And it, you know, the supply chain has so much, and and the manufacture of the products is so much to do with what you know tied into what Johnny does. It, you know, it they they get the operations engineers involved at the very beginning of the prototyping process. And they're already thinking about how to, you know, as they come up with prototypes. So they're thinking, you know, how they're going to manufacture this stuff on a on a massive indu- industrial scale. So yeah, they've always been very complementary. And Cook, you know, um, is considered a genius and and did some amazing things in setting up this this killer supply chain that can make these products so beautifully um, in their millions and deliver them all over the world in complete secrecy. It's you know qu- quite an achievement, and yeah, I think they are very complementary, and uh, uh, you know it's 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 quite a killer team they put together the at <laughs> Apple. Yeah, how has Ives' role changed uh, since both Jobs passed and um, he took over as head of human interface? Essentially, you know, like you said, becoming St- taking Steve Jobs' role for the whole company. Yeah, it's um. It was kind of strange because when they announced that, they really buried that in the press release. And it, it was like the sort of, you know, they tried to make it sound like it was the least important part of that announcement. The announcement was um, that they were giving, that Scott Forster was leaving the company. Um, he was the former head of the um, iOS software. And um, that they were giving some additional responsibilities to some of the other executives. And oh, and by the way, you know, Johnny Ive is going to take over software as well as hardware. Um, and it was like talk about bearing the lead. Uh, it it you know it, it he's now become um, the the uh, the arbiter for the, the software that goes into the hardware, and taken on that role that that Jobs had of overseeing you know the entire product. And I think it's an important thing to have to have one person um, be the arbiter that that of of these decisions. Um, and Cook said at the time that no one has better taste than than Johnny Ive, and I, you know, so he he's. They haven't really talked about it, but it, it's difficult to. I think a lot, you know, as typical of Apple, a lot of the work comes up from the sort of rank and file. You know, it comes up through the, the the um the the organizations. You know, so the software is being designed by the software department, and they present the stuff to Johnny the way that. Johnny presented hardware designs to Steve when Steve was alive, and you know maybe they're um, manipulating Johnny and giving him stuff they just want him to approve. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I don't know. You know, I get the feeling. I think if you look at iOS seven, um, it's 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 clearly a a a, a um, an operating system that has been designed by a hardware expert. Yeah, it you know it re- it is very much a sort of hardware centric operating system. And you know the the lack of all these skeuomorphic references, and the fact that it it sort of behaves like a you know a physical object. It reacts to 
um, the accelerometers, you know, the, to, 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 to gravity and to its orientation. And things are set on very clear planes and you have the parallax effect so you can see the stuff is sort of floating above the background. It, it kind of feels like a physical object. It, it, it obeys the laws of physics. Right, right. And, uh, you know, I think that's so, you know, you can sort of clearly see his influence there. That's actually really deep down into it. So the indication is that he's very, you know, that I would guess that he's very involved in a lot of the fundamental decisions about it. Yeah. Has there been any sense of him spending less time with the ID group? Because well, of all these new roles and... Yeah, I was just looking I was looking through the um, the video um, of for the new spaceship campus. Yeah, um, and um, he is there in all the pictures with Norman Foster, um, and there's a lot of photographs of him, you know, looking at models and and then um, visiting Norman Foster partners in London, um, the architects in London, and this is a big project that he seems to be intimately involved with. Um, so I, you know, it's. It's hard to say because the company is so secretive, and he does seem to be traveling a lot. Um, and he's made a few more public appearances, you know, like he was talking about the red auction that he set up with um, Mark Newsom, yeah. the, the uh, Australian designer. So he, it, it looks as though he is traveling and involved in some extracurricular projects and doing a sort of bit of PR for for Apple and for and for Bono's red charity. It's you know, so I imagine that he's spending a little less time, maybe, but it's hard to say. You know, they've not, he hasn't addressed it. No one has, um, you know, talked about it. Um, so I, I can't honestly say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wonder. Um, you know, I wonder who's his Johnny Ive now. You know, because if he's playing this yeah. the Steve Jobs role, you know, it seemed like they had. You know, a lot of that worked because there was a, a, a give and take between that collaboration where, you know, one was able to push the other and vice versa. And I wonder who that person is now for Johnny. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good question. Exactly. And, you know, um, one of um, Johnny's old colleagues said that he thinks that Johnny is more important for Apple now than Steve Jobs was towards the end of his life, which is really a testament to Jobs. You know, Jobs' greatest product was Apple itself. Right. Um, and I don't think, you know, it, it only, I think people only sort of re realize that later in, in his career or towards the end of his career that, you know, he actually managed to build a company that would outlive, uh, outlive him. Um, and, you know, it, Johnny is so, such a singular talent that it's not clear who would take over his role and if someone would be able to run the ID department as well as he's run it. His two main designers are uh, Richard Howarth and, and Chris Stringer, and they were the two lead designers on the iPhone and the iPad. And, you know, they've both been there from the very beginning, you know, from um, around the same time that Johnny Ive was recruited um, by, by Robert Bruner back in the early 90s. And, you know, it, and because of Apple's secrecy, it's, it's impossible to know, um, you know, whether they are his successes or one of them is his, his successor or if it's somebody else. Right. So yeah, it's an intriguing question. Yeah. It's a great question. Who is, you know, who's Johnny Ive's Johnny Ive now? Right. Right. You know, it seems that anytime that there's a big leadership change in any organization, there's always a, you know, a partial reaction against what came before it. And so like you mentioned before, uh, you know, the early days of the company when, when jobs was first there, it was very sort of disorganized and he was very, tyrannical um and 
And so in the late 80s through 90s, they kind of moved to this model where every level of the company had to sign off on a decision to build consensus. Uh, and then Jobs came back and he essentially became the creative director for the whole company and all the decisions kind of routed through him. How has Apple changed since Jobs' passing? I don't think it's changed much at all. One of the interesting things about Apple and, and Jobs' philosophy was that he loved to work in small teams. He couldn't stand to work in a, in a big company. He thought that they were, you know, slow and, and bureaucratic. And, and he's managed to build a big company, a huge company, that isn't slow and bureaucratic. Yeah. And it's because I think he's empowered, you know, this small team, the industrial design studio, um, to act like a nimble startup and to work very quickly and to be quite radical. Um, yeah. And it was sort of the same thing that he did, you know, with the early original Mac team and de de um, developing the original Macintosh. You know, he took a bunch of um, hardware and software engineers and set them up in a small studio away from the main Apple campus. They flew a pirate flag up the pole and, and, and for three years, you know, they hashed out the original Mac. Um, and at Pixar, you know, it was a very sort of small team of creatives that were developing Pixar's hit movies. And then with the industrial design studio, you know, he's empowered a fairly small team of 20 people to be the sort of Edison's design, you know, invention uh, lab right there in the heart of Apple. And the rest of Apple's, you know, it's kind of, I was surprised at how bureaucratic it is. You know, they have this thing called the um, Apple New Product Process, the ANPP. Mm -hmm. And it's like this incredible checklist for everything you need to do to develop a new product and it's tied in to all the suppliers in Asia so as soon as they start to work on it um, everyone starts working on it in parallel and it includes even sort of like the contracts that they have to sign with music companies um, you know legal documents service and support uh, all the suppliers like you know do you have every single screw and do they have enough paint um, you know, so it delves really deeply into hundreds of supplies in their supply chain. And everyone starts working on this in parallel. And because it's so well documented and so well disciplined, you know, it, it's a really, really well disciplined process that they can follow. So it allows this huge company to run like a, you know, well oiled machine, like clockwork. Um, well, meanwhile, you have a fairly small team that has a lot of freedom um, to be creative. So it's, you know, it's, it's quite a genius system. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's interesting to me about, about this book, you know, especially from the perspective of an industrial designer is that, you know, by you documenting Ives struggles and successes and his kind of growth through his career, we have a really good picture of how he and his team work. And, and I think in most ways they have a lot in common with any designer, any design team. I mean, I think that they are very, supremely talented there's no question that they're the the top of the field but a lot of you know a lot of their processes are very similar if not identical to what most industrial designers or design teams do and so you know it's it's like there's no real big secret weapon other than the fact that they're yeah. they're very good they work very hard and they've been empowered to do what they feel is right Right, yeah, it's all standard practice, isn't it? I think, yeah, for industrial designers, there's nothing here that they go, wow, you know, we should be doing that. They're, they're working just like most of the other industrial designers do. Yeah. The difference is the empowerment, isn't it? Yes, I mean, it's, yes. You know, it's the ability to get their work 
implemented. Yeah, and I think that's been the hard thing for a lot of companies that see the success of Apple, and they go, well, let's, you know, especially when the iPod first came out, you would get clients coming in saying, I want to do the iPod of, the, of this industry. And they just could not grasp what that actually would mean <laughs> for their company to be able to think about a product in that sort of way. You know, it's, and it's more than just kind of the skinning. It's more, it's this, you know, we really need to kind of have a, a deep strategy. And a lot of people don't actually want, a lot of companies don't want to actually go to that level. Yeah, you know, they, I heard this quite a lot. You know, people, um, Br Bruno, you know, now working in an agency and, and all the designers. I, I interviewed a bunch of designers for the um, uh, for the book, you know, to get their, their take. And um, they heard that from all their clients. I want to be the, you know, I want to make the iPod of my industry. I want to make the iPhone of my industry. And what they mean is, you know, they want to make a product that's loved. Um, but they're concentrating on the product. They're looking at the, you know, the artifact, the, the device, the gadget. Right. And they're not looking at how it's created. Um, and I think that, you know this is the mistake that when you know when the iPod came out, um, everyone tried it like you know Microsoft had the Zune and Dell had the whatever it was, and you know they're all looking at the 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 gadgets, and they weren't looking at the process that created the gadget. And there was an, actually a really interesting story in in the New York Times um, at the weekend about how Samsung is you know become and now becoming the sort of uh, you know, the volume leader in the smartphone market. Uh, uh, that it, it it's kind of now it's kind of like it's freaking out because it's what's next right you know they they don't know what to do they don't know how to be in a leadership position they don't have an organization um that can come up with a sort of next groundbreaking product they've always been a fast follower they know how to copy products and and you know to compete in categories that have been defined by other companies but they've no idea how to create new categories and you can see this in the you know the, the galaxy watch Right, exactly. Um, that's that's a great example. Yeah, right. And um, you know, I think meanwhile, Apple's design lab is cooking up some really interesting stuff. Yeah, um, and they don't release it until they feel like they actually have it. They don't. Oh, absolutely. they don't need to be first. They just need to be best. Yeah, and it, you can see they didn't have the first cell phone. They didn't have the first MP3 player. But they completely re redefined those categories. Right. And you know, we all know for a fact that they have TVs. Um, and they have, you know, and they're working on some kind of wearable or wearables. Um, and I don't think it's going to be an iWatch. Um, mm. and what do you cars, think it's going to be? Well, you know, I wish I knew. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, they've, they've been hiring. The engineering department has been hiring engineers with expertise in biometric sensors and, they have some very advanced sensing um, technologies now um, that can peer into your blood stream and determine your blood chemistry. So there is a sensor that can will shine a light into your the veins on your wrist and measure your blood glucose. Um, and you know, I don't know. Maybe if you put that into an iWatch, you'd have a device that could tell you, you know, help you with dieting and with your basic you know cardiovascular health um you know there are there are sensors that you can build into the fabric of a t-shirt that will you know tell how you're breathing and also your um, rhythms of your heart and give warning if you're about to have a heart attack um but it can also monitor you know your 
everyday health, you know, how you're doing, how you respond to exercise and how you sleep. But, you know, Apple, I think, you know, I don't think they want to come out with some nifty gadget that, you know, might appeal to, um, you know, sports people who like um, to measure. The quantified cell thing, I think, appeals to only a very small, you know, minority of the population. Apple's only interested in mass market products, universal products, products that will appeal to everybody. Right. So, you know, I think these things are intriguing, uh, um, but I, and this is what the design lab does, you know, they, they, this is what the questions that they're, at, they're asking, you know, is there something we can do with these technologies that has universal appeal? Um, and so it's going to be very interesting when they come out with something, because I, I think it will, you know, they, they're only going to come out with something if they answer that question successfully. Right, right. You mentioned in the book that Ive is working on a monograph of his work. Do you have any information beyond that? That was very interesting to me when I when I saw that. I don't, um, but I know that they you know they document everything they do um, you know really carefully. They photograph all the prototypes, they photograph all the models, they photograph you know the sketches and and of course the finished products. Yeah. Uh, so he's been working on it since Jobs or before Jobs died, I think. Uh, d definitely since Jobs died. So. It's been in process for two years, but that's all I know. I don't know when it's going to come out or yeah. if it is it's going to come out. Yeah, yeah. It, it would be great. You know, I, I think, um, you know, there's such an important design group and it's, such, it's so clearly they're in the middle of their moment. Um, and there's so many industries that I think if we could bring that sort of mentality to them, I think, you know, there would be so much better products coming out quicker and you know we really start to see a lot of really interesting innovation happening in a way and you know i think people think apple is very secretive about it and i think if they could there's something that'd be nice if the, if uh sharing it to people that don't maybe necessarily get it. i think a lot of designers kind of get what they're doing but if there's a way to kind of share that knowledge without you know they don't need to share what the next iphone is um but you know bringing that sort of um process forward i think would be just a huge benefit not just to industry but to society absolutely but um you know apple um feels that this stuff is an industrial design secret this is part of their you know their, their secret source yeah uh, this is you know they don't want to talk about it. I, on previous occasions when i interviewed like rubenstein and others i mean they would not talk about the internal processes, the internal um, organization, you know, the, the way that they, they don't release an org chart. You know, you've no idea how Apple is is um, is organized. And some of the engineers, I t none of this stuff got in the book, but I talked to, you know, some of the engineers that were working in the factories and worked with the industrial design team to implement the products. And they gave me quite a lot of detail about the, you know, the sort of exact way, the way that the, they're set up and all the different stages and, and, and all those different parts of the AMPP. Um, but, you know, it, I think it would be fascinating to you know to a small to industrial designers and to to people who are interested in 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 the way that the company is is structured and management experts but you know it kind of became too much detail really for for for, for this book yeah um, yeah i'm I'm working on a um case study that um uh, I hope to publish early next year that goes into a bit more detail oh wow how exactly apple works that's great that's great but, yeah i don't I only scratched the surface too, you know, like it, it was difficult to get this sort of stuff. You know, Rubenstein told me that they consider this stuff an industrial design secret. This is a huge part of their, 
their success. Hmm. Uh, they don't want to share it with competitors because because <laughs> you know it, it gets a leg up. It's 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 as imp, you know possibly more important than you know uh, the details of the next product. Yeah. Because this is how they do it. Yeah, yeah. and it's funny because at the same time, it just doesn't feel like a secret to me. It just seems like the secret's hard work and giving the designers opportunity to, um, you know, to be more at the at the table making decisions. I mean, that's really yeah. that's really the secret. Yeah, I, you know, I don't think we, you know, I, I didn't document it in the book, and and I don't think anyone's really documented. It. I've never, I haven't read any accounts. You know, you know who's documenting it is Apple themselves. Yeah. They hired you know, David Yoffe and um, a couple of other, you know, top. Uh, management academics. I mean, t two or three of the, the the leading academics in management theory in the country to set up Apple University, and Jobs wanted to do this, you know, to make sure that um, you know they documented exactly how they do they they created these products and and to pass that on to um, you know future next the next generation of managers and and staff at the company. So Apple knows how to do it, and they're documenting it very very carefully. Yeah. Uh, and sharing it, but only internally. Yeah, they <laughs> they won't share it with the outside. Sure. Sure. Uh, well, you know, um, although um, it, 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 the people they hired are academics, and academics like to publish. So, you know, we can hold out hope that one day, yeah, uh, the, the secrets will be revealed. Yeah, yeah. Well, great. Um, I'm, I, I love the book. The book's uh, Johnny Ive, the genius behind Apple's greatest products. Um, thanks a lot, Leander. Um, and uh, good luck with, uh, with the book. Great, thank you. Thanks so much uh, for you know for uh, for talking to me today. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Well, that's our show. I want to thank Leander for being our guest today. His book, Johnny Ive: The Genius Behind Apple's Greatest Products, is now available for order in both hardcover and ebook formats by going to cultofmac.com slash Johnny Ive. You can subscribe to After School on iTunes. Just go to the iTunes store on your computer or the podcast app on your mobile device and search for Core 77 or After School. And when you're there, if you like what you're hearing, give us a nice review so other people can find us as well. Also on Core 77, we include show notes that link you to all the stuff you heard us talking about with Lander. You can follow me and the After School podcast on Twitter at After School and you can follow Core 77 on Twitter at Core 77. After School's theme song is Introducing Today by Disco Lobos. I'm Don Lehman. Talk to you soon. <laughs>